0: And then this morning, I wanted to move on to what is called Monday Thursday, which will be Thursday before, the, the night right before Good Friday. And Monday is a Middle English word that gets its name from Latin, actually. In John's account of the Last Supper, which spans like five chapters from 13 to 17, is that five? <laughs> he, he gives what Jesus calls a new commandment, and in Latin that is mandatum novum. Mandatum Novum Dovobis would be a new commandment I give you, to love each other as I have loved you. But also he does several things that evening at that last supper. Besides giving the new commandment, he also institutes the Eucharist, the communion, and he also washes his disciples' feet. And that's the piece that I want to focus on this morning, is the washing of the feet. Because... It is so difficult for us as modern Westerners to really get the kick, to really get the disturbance, the shock that such an action as Jesus washing his disciples' feet would have caused in those very disciples because of their acculturation, because of who they were, because of their society. That meant something so radical, so shocking that Peter refuses to be a part of it at first. We need to understand what was so shocking about that action if we're ever going to understand the radical nature of what Jesus is trying to teach through that. That mates with all of his words, mates with all of his teaching at the same time. But here was this object lesson that he gives his his apostles, his followers, his friends. You know, what is the foot washing going to show us? You know, for us, it's kind of a quaint thing. A lot more weddings are doing. Feet washing now, have you seen this? You know where uh, at the end of the ceremony or sometime during the ceremony the the bride will sit down, and the groom will bring out a basin of water and wash her feet, and then she 'll do it for him and uh, it 's becoming kind of a quaint or, or really nice thing to do, but it doesn 't have that shock value. The pope ritually every Monday, Thursday, finds twelve homeless people, poor people and they bring him up into his audience, and he washes their feet one by one, kisses their feet. Beautiful gesture. But what does it mean to us? What can we take from this lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us? Let's read uh, at John 13, and let's just see what, first of all, the passage has to say about what Jesus did. Starting right at verse 1. Now, before the Feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil hall already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> you got to love Peter. <laughs> Peter, it's amazing how someone's personality can survive 2,000 years. But there it is. The impetuous one. The one who is jumping out of boats, jumping to swim ashore because Jesus is out there opening up his mouth, saying the most impetuous things, thinking better of it later. I mean, it's just on and on and on with Peter. He must have been just the most interesting guy. Probably would drive you crazy, but he would be the most interesting guy. Here he is again. All right? You're not going to wash my feet? What's going on here? Why is Peter so upset? Why is this something that is just really driving him crazy? And, And to get that, we've got to understand what the feet washing, the washing of feet, really means in Semitic culture. And it's not just the Jews. These are all the Semites. Do you know what we mean when we say Semitic? I know when you say anti-Semitic and all that. The Semitic peoples are defined by the Semitic languages that are all, linguists can tell, they're all one. There was one parent language that they all descended from or they all evolved from each other. But uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Noah had three sons after the flood. It was Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Shem is the son from whom all the Semitic peoples descend, and they were all throughout the Middle East, from what is now Phine- what was Phoenicia, what is now Israel, all the way back to Iran and Iraq, and south into North Africa, into Ethiopia. All those languages, whether it's Aramaic, Arabic, Hebrew, Akkadian, Assyrian, Ethiopic, all those languages are related to each other and are considered Semitic. And these people have a culture that's in common. They have a worldview that's in common. Even today, Hebrew and Arabic are so close to each other. They share many of the same words, at least in terms of the consonants, if not the vowels. But they also share a culture. And so this foot, shoe, sandal part of their culture was common throughout this entire area, this entire region. And if you think back in ancient times, wherever you see shoes in the New Testament or even the Old Testament, really what they were were sandals. And sandals were made by a sole, just creating a sole out of a stiff piece of animal skin and then softer leather thongs or skin thongs that would tie it onto the foot. Sometimes the sole was made out of wood and then there were leather thongs that held it. But it was all open, open open-toed, open-foot kind of sandals. It was just something to give some kind of... uh, you know, protection for the sole of the foot, as you walked, and everybody walked on dirt roads. Imagine what that's like. Have you ever walked just on a dirt path and know what your feet get? Imagine if you did that with flip-flops on. First of all, you're getting all the rocks and things in there that you're constantly... But how dirty do your feet get if you walk a dirt path in flip-flops or sandals? So you can imagine, this was their, their normal state. They're always walking from here to there, on these dirt roads, when they got to another house, their feet were filthy. And so it was up to the host. It was part of Eastern hospitality for the host to have available a basin with water and towels for their guests to be able to come in and wash. Typically, ancient peoples were barefoot inside their homes. And so the shoes always stayed outside. Those animal skins or or wooden shoes... Impossible to clean. Once they got dirty, they got sweat on them, they got all that stuff on, you left those outside, washed your feet, and then came inside. And not only that, you're walking around barefoot in the house, so it was customary for Hebrews to wash again feet and hands before they ate and before they went to bed at night. They were washing throughout the day. This is part of it, but especially when you entered a home. And if you entered the home of another person and they were your host, if they were rich enough, if they were wealthy enough and they had slaves or servants, the host could order the slave to wash your feet for you and have that that service performed for you. But here's the interesting thing. Under Jewish law, a host could not force a Hebrew slave to wash someone else's feet because that was beneath them. It would be the lowest Gentile slave who would wash the feet. In that culture, the feet are the lowest part of the body. They are the part that is in contact with the ground. They're always dirty, and they're considered unclean. Even in Arabic culture today, you know about Arabic culture where it's uh, the the foot is and the shoes are considered unclean. I don't know if you remember when uh, Saddam Hussein's regime was toppled. That's getting to be a long time ago, though, isn't it? We've got a lot of people in here maybe don't remember that. But it was the strangest thing. When you watch the images on television of the Iraqis pulling down the statue of Saddam, what did they do? They took off their shoes and they were pounding that statue. They were hitting that statue. Because to hit someone with a shoe was the, and still is, one of the highest insults. Someone threw a shoe at George W. Bush to try to show their distaste for him. They created a mosaic of George Bush's face in one of their um, public buildings so that everybody was walking on him You know, as another sign of disrespect. If you're in an Arabic country and you sit cross-legged with your ankle on your knee and your soul is pointing to a person, that is a huge insult to them. You don't ever want to show your soles of your feet to another person. So this is kind of the mindset that we're talking about. The shoes, the feet... They're dirty, they're unclean, and they need to be washed. And so the only people that would do that were the lowest of the low, except in certain cases. Rabbinical, and ladies, you're going to love this, in rabbinical literature, the rabbis say that the wife's duty was to wash her husband's hands and feet. And no matter how many maids she had, that was still her show of devotion and service to her husband. And in special cases where a host felt a special love and devotion for a guest that was coming over, they may actually wash that person's feet. It was rare, but it showed a special love and devotion. I hope you're starting to get into the culture and the understanding of the significance of this act, but there's more. Showing any kind of skin or especially public nudity was taboo in Hebrew culture, If you look in Leviticus, chapter 13, and I forget, 18, 15, there are all these prohibitions against nakedness, against showing of skin. There's a story that's great out of Genesis 9 about Noah. After the flood, and he's got his three sons, and he gets drunk one night, and he uncovers himself and is passed out on his bed in his tent. And his son Ham comes in and sees him and then goes out and tells his brothers. And what do his brothers do? They back up, they stand with their back to him with a big blanket over both their shoulders and they back up to him so they're not looking at him and they throw the blanket over on him to cover his nakedness, but they don't see. But Ham saw and Noah finds out about it and he's not happy and he curses Ham's son and all these things are going on. You know. But there is this taboo in Jewish culture for showing your skin. That's why crucifixion was such a humiliation because the Romans crucified their, their victims in the nude. Yeah, we put the loincloth on Jesus you know, to clean it up. But they would have been crucified in the nude. And that was absolute humiliation, abomination to a Jew. Here is Jesus taking off his garments, stripping himself down to his loincloth. There were really only three major pieces of, of clothing that, that people wore. And that was an outer coat, an, an outer mantle an inner tunic, and a loincloth. Jesus strips down to the loincloth and then ties a towel around his hips, taking the actual aspect of a Gentile slave in order to perform this task. He is breaking all of the rules, all of the rituals. And the foot washer was always subservient to the person who he was washing. And here was the teacher showing something to these men? What was he trying to get across? Why was he doing this? What was going on? I hope you're starting to get the full brunt of what these men were feeling as Jesus was doing this for them. Because here's the run up to the Last Supper Jesus' popularity had been growing by leaps and bounds. He moves into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Triumphantly, The people go wild. The authorities are starting to get really concerned about Jesus' popularity. And they are smelling blood in the water. They are starting to understand this man that we've been following all these years is the Messiah. He's the one who is going to raise the army kick out the Romans and reestablish Jewish sovereignty. And in passage after passage leading up to this, you see them jockeying for position, arguing among each other. Who can sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand when his kingdom comes into fruition? Because they're still understanding it in that political way, in that physical way. And they wanted to share in the power. And what does Jesus do this night? His last night with them. He strips down and he washes their feet Do you start to see what's going on here? He is blowing their minds with this act. Everything that they were running up to is now being taken away. Why is he doing this? Well, he tells them. Let's continue at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, so also ought you to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I do, as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. They hadn't heard him. They hadn't understood what he was all about. After all those years, they still were looking for the spectacular thing, the powerful thing. They were looking for them to be able to raise their own stock in this whole enterprise that they thought Jesus was working on. They thought he was still going to work from the top down to create a hierarchy, a power structure, and then impose it on the people. But Jesus wasn't going to do that. Jesus wasn't out to turn the world upside down. He was out to turn hearts upside down and inside out and backside front. And when enough of those hearts had been changed, Christianity and the followers of Jesus did turn the world upside down. But that wasn't Jesus' intent. He was talking to individuals about a very, very interior and personal journey that they needed to take to find Father. And the only way that that could be accomplished was to live like Father first in order to be able to see who Father really was. And Jesus is showing what that looks like. He's showing how that plays out. It's not in lording it over people. It's not in established power over people. It's about coming underneath and supporting and caring and nurturing and literally debasing self in the eyes of some in order to be there for that person. What do we still value? What do we value in life? Both our physical life and our spiritual lives? I mean, we hear this and we hear Jesus acting in this humble way and we applaud it and we say, oh, isn't that great? But would the rubber hits the road in our real lives? Would we really celebrate that? Would we really value that? Would you value a pastor, or any leader, think hard now, that you saw eating and drinking and laughing and yucking it up in a bar with prostitutes, with drug addicts, with felons, with gang members, with Republicans, with Democrats, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, with Trump supporters, yeah, with gay rights activists, Whoever it is in your world, in your worldview, who stands on the other side of that aisle, who is maybe not only wrong, but also evil, because that's what I see so much now in our culture today. The other side isn't wrong. They're evil. And the dialogue is gone. And here's Jesus bridging all those gaps. Could you support? Would you still respect? Would you want to follow someone that you saw in that situation? And would Jesus go to a bar? (laughs) You know, I'm trying to make a modern equivalent. Jesus went to the houses of these people. That was anathema to anyone who was following the law. To eat and drink and break bread with someone who was outside, the law made you absolutely ritually unclean. So whatever it is that's in your taboo, whatever it is in you, if you saw Jesus there, if you saw your leader, your pastor there, would you still want to be a part of that group? What if your pastor engaged in civil disobedience? You know? What if he started marching, carrying signs, throwing rocks through windows, overturning tables, got arrested? Would you still be able to follow that leader then? What if he or she spoke about incomprehensible things, things that made absolutely no sense to you? Not common sense, not cultural sense, crazy things, Started talking about hating your father and your mother, breaking down family values. What's this all about? You know, what if he told you you needed to eat flesh if you're a vegetarian? Jesus said you have to eat my flesh. How do you think that went over with Jews? You know, for us, cannibalism is so far out of the picture. We understand that's metaphoric. But what if he says you got to eat meat if you're a vegetarian? How's that going to mess with your head? You know, what if he says don't resist evil? Turn the other cheek. How does that play out when you're talking about immigration rights on either side of that argument? How does that play out when you talk about big business, big pharma, big government that is trampling the little person? I'm not supposed to resist that? I'm supposed to turn the other cheek? What is it when it comes to terrorists, Islamists, or otherwise? What are we supposed to do there? What about those Baptists too? What are we going to do with them? Fundamentalists, those who don't share our religious viewpoint, even within Christianity. What if you saw that person hanging out with those kind of people? Would you follow? What about the leader who keeps refusing to take any sort of greater power, greater influence, greater stature Growing and and growing the influence. What if you have a pastor who refuses to start a 24-hour satellite network so the the message can get out to the entire globe? How long are you going to follow that person? A person who chooses to remain unassuming. Maybe embarrasses you with some kind of action that seems undignified. like washing feet of people who really don't deserve it. This is where we have to really go to try to get a sense of the radical nature of what Jesus is doing and the radical way that he disappointed those who were trying to follow him because they had a completely different idea of what Messiah was all about, a completely different idea of what Jesus was supposed to be about in their expectation. And I think there's so much more in our culture, so much that acculturates us to look for greatness as we understand it, the top of the pyramid, rather than anything that Jesus is presenting. There's a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Whiplash. I don't know if uh, did anyone see it, Whiplash. Oh, good. I can just talk about it. I can, I can present it any way I want to, except for Joe. Joe's going to know if I'm telling the truth or not. But this movie was interesting to me because uh, I was a music major in college and and, uh, I kind of grew up in that, that jazz culture you know, of people trying to make jazz music and be great jazz players. And this is what the movie was about. It centered on the director of the jazz band of a prestigious music school and a young drummer who was first year just coming into that school. And the director takes him into his band because he sees promise in him but he is absolutely brutal sadistic even with every one of his players pushing them and pushing them in the most obscene ways with the most obscene language and just be, it's hard to watch what he does to these kids you know pounding them pounding them pounding them over and over again to the point that finally the young drummer leaves the band and he is so angry and so hurt and his pride is so hurt that he reports the director to the school board, and he is dismissed from his position for the things that he did to the drummer and to the other kids. And there's a scene later on, toward the end of the movie, where they meet again some months later after this has all taken place. And they sit down, and they have a conversation. And I wanted to read to you just a couple paragraphs of this dialogue. The director is talking to the young drummer, and he says, you know, the truth is, I don't think people understood what it was I was doing at Schaefer. That's the name of the school. I wasn't there to conduct. Any moron can wave his arms and keep people in tempo. I was there to push people beyond what's expected of them. I believe that's an absolute necessity. Otherwise, we are depriving the world of the next Louis Armstrong, the next Charlie Parker. If you don't know who Charlie Parker is at Central, he is considered maybe the greatest jazz musician of the 20th century, saxophone player. I told you that story about Charlie Parker became Charlie Parker, right? Joe Jones threw a cymbal at his head, exactly. Parker's a young kid, pretty good at the, on the sax, gets up to play at a cutting session and he messes it up. And Jones nearly decapitates him for it. And he's laughed off stage. But the next morning, what does he do? He practices, and he practices, and he practices with one goal in mind, never to be laughed at again. And a year later, he goes back to the Reno, and he steps up on that stage, and he plays the best solo the world has ever heard. So imagine if Jones had just said, well, that's okay, Charlie. That was all right. Good job. And then Charlie thinks to himself, well, yeah, I did do a pretty good job. End of story. No greatness. That, to me, is an absolute tragedy. But that's just what the world wants now. People wonder why jazz is dying. I'll tell you, man, and every Starbucks jazz album just proves my point, really. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Do you see where he's going with this? The whole point of that movie, as brutal as it was, is that he justified his actions, he justified what he was doing in order to achieve greatness. He wanted to bring out of his tutelage the next Charlie Parker, the next Buddy Rich, the next greatest player. And the only way that he thought that this was going to happen was if they were pushed and pushed beyond what they ever thought that they could do. And he pushes this young drummer out, but it turns out the young drummer is cut from the same cloth. And they come back together again in a certain way in this movie, but there was a scene that happened before with the young drummer where he's home for Thanksgiving or something with his extended family, and they get into this conversation about his music and about his career. And Uncle Frank, it was Uncle Frank, says, you got any friends, Andy? Andrew was the name of the drummer. Andrew says, no. Oh, why is that? I don't know. I just never really saw the use. Well, who are you going to play with otherwise? Lennon and McCartney, they were school buddies, am I right? Charlie Parker didn't know anybody till Joe Jones threw a cymbal at his head. So that's your idea of success, huh? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. And the drummer says, I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34, and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90. And nobody remembered who I am. This is a mindset that we generally admire. If not put this way, because this seems so over the top, but I got to tell you what, if any of you have ever been in a hyper-competitive group, whether it's in the arts or whether it's sports or whether it's business or whatever, this mentality prevails, this is why people are there. This is what they order their lives around. You know, I was trying to order my life around that. I just wasn't good enough. I never got in that club. You know, But once someone is in that club, they know it. And they lord it over the rest. Boy, you knew where you were in your pecking order in a jazz band. I'm telling you that. And I don't know if you've experienced this. And may sound over the top, but even if that description is over the top, to bald-facedly say something right out loud like that. We still admire the people of greatness who come from that sort of single-minded mentality. We still are looking at that as the kind of person we want to emulate, that as the kind of person that we want to follow, that as the kind of person we want on our team. We admire the greats. And we look down on those that we consider underachievers. There's another show this is, this is my morning for kind of going through a couple shows that, I don't know, this week just kind of struck me as I was thinking about this stuff. Have any of you seen the show Call the Midwife? It's a, it's a PBS series, but it's based on a true story. Jennifer Worth was a young woman who was born in 1935, and in the early 50s, she got a broken heart from a, an illicit affair that she was having, and she decided to change her career path and went into training to become a nurse. And then got certified as a midwife because back in the 50s, doctors still didn't deliver children. It was really the midwives. It was all women's business back then. And then she took a position as a district nurse doing, being a midwife in the Lower East End of London, which is the poorest of the poor, just endless tenements, people packed in like sardines, everybody working the docks, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, and she had to confront a whole different kind of life. She came from a family with means. She was someone who had never experienced, had no idea that people lived the way these people were living. And here she is in her early 20s, bicycling through the streets of this slum area by herself, going to these homes, you know, one room flats with sometimes 15, 20 people in them, and delivering babies. And she had to hold back her revulsion at what she saw. She had to hold back her revulsion at the people that she was judging because they were living the way that they were living and she couldn't understand why. But she stuck with it. And her memoirs that she wrote in later in life formed the basis of this series, which was done really well. But there was one scene in the very first episode where she's sitting with a nurse her age who had been there several years doing this work. And she asks her, did you find it hard when you first came here? And the other nurse answers, I thought I deserved all manner of medals for what I was doing. Up all night, cycling for miles, a wall of nuns at every single meal. This was done within a, a, a convent setting. And then one day I realized I didn't deserve any medals at all. The mothers are the brave ones baby after baby in abominable conditions and they keep on going. They're the heroines. I'm just here to help. See, even in a situation like this where you can say, these young women, these nurses who have moved into this horrible situation and have not done other things that they could do, This woman could have, she said, I could have been an air hostess. I could have been a model. I could have been a concert pianist. But she chose this. She said, it's madness. And yet if we are then taking them and making them the heroines of the story, we're still missing the deeper point. The deeper point is there are people who are completely invisible that we will never see, that we will never know, that are showing up every day and doing the heroic thing showing up and washing the feet of everyone around them that needs their care. And they'll never get a medal for it. And they'll never get a TV show about them. They'll never get recognized as anything that we would want to be or anyone that we would want to follow. And yet they're exactly what Jesus is talking about. Exactly what Jesus is exemplifying in his life And in his teaching, this is where he's trying to get us. A couple weeks ago, we had patriotic night at our son's school. It was a Monday night, and... uh, put on the dog with this thing you know all the kids are prepped and we get there and the place is packed it's all full and uh each classroom is set together and the little ones they got the the spiky headdress on for the statue of liberty and some of them actually have the toga on and they're carrying torches and they parade them up onto the stage and they're singing americana yankee doodle dandy and god bless america and, and song after song after song and in between that they're doing skits where some of the kids are dressed up like founding fathers, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, of course. And and they're, they're celebrating America. They're celebrating patriotism. And, of course, they're celebrating our faith within all of that. And they cut a video asking kids, you know, what they thought it meant to be an American. And you invariably get answers like, I get to play soccer, you know, and I get to go to school and I get to eat ice cream. And what does it mean to be free in America? I get to play soccer and I get to go to school and I get to eat ice cream. You know, it's kind of the same thing, you know, and then at the end, they honored each of the. Five service branches, they included the Coast Guard, and they played their theme songs and they had anyone who was a vet or an active, um, you know, military person stand up and they honored them. And I'm watching all of this and I'm thinking, you know, (laughs) the kids don't really have a at least the little ones, I really have a grasp of what's going on here. You know, we're celebrating all the, we're we're bringing faith together, we're bringing politics together, what is really going on here? And then I stopped for a second and I realized, man, I'm way overthinking this thing. I just stopped and I just looked. And what did I see? I saw a sea of smartphones being held up like this to tape and record their children on stage. It was hilarious. It was just stopped. All the parents had their cell phones up, and they were, they were recording their kid on stage. And then I looked down at the edge of the stage, in the dark, in the shadows. Here were the kids' teachers as they were singing, doing all the hand movements and mouthing all the words so that they would be on key and you know, and it's like that's what it was all about. It's about people just showing up to real life. People showing up day to day. Those teachers showing up every day that they're with those kids, teaching them songs, teaching them their lessons, preparing their lessons at home with their families around and trying to balance all of that craziness and parents doing everything that they do in order to be able to afford to have their kid in a school like that. It's just people. They're not getting honored. They're just there doing what they do day in and day out, washing the feet of these little children so that they can have a chance in life. That's what it's about. Can we ever get that? Can we ever make that shift? Can we understand what Jesus is talking about here at John 15, where he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, okay, read there. If you live as I live, love as I love, relate as I relate, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, you are my friends when you live like a friend. We are Jesus' friends when we live as he lived. It's that simple. Because we are one with him. We are connected with him. And to lay down your lives... For whatever friend is in your path at the moment is oneness with Jesus. But note this. Jesus isn't talking about dying for someone. He's talking about living for someone in a way that lets die everything that you think you know about being a great person. To take that understanding and turn it upside down, inside out, back to front. And live as Jesus lived, for his friends by laying aside his own life if you want to find your life you got to lose it if you want to sit at the head of the table you sit at the foot if you want to be first you'll be last over and over again trying to get us to understand this self-effacing humility this unassuming stance dynamic relationship is everything that's life that's kingdom Can we make that shift? It runs deep. We can nod our head and say yes, but it runs so deep, you'll find yourself back over and over again, back on the hamster wheel, trying to get to that place. But here's the kicker. Jesus washes the feet of the very people that he is teaching and supposed to be master of. And then he says, I and the Father are one. There is nothing that I do but the Father hasn't done through me. I have no initiative of my own. I only do the things that I see my Father doing through me. And he's washing the feet of those that he was sent to teach. That means Jesus is a foot washer at heart. And his Father, the creator of everything, the first cause of heaven and earth, is a foot washer too. Jesus existed. He came to serve. He exists to wash our feet. Can we really go there? And then can we take the next leap that the creator of heaven and earth exists to serve us and wash our feet too? It sounds blasphemous to even say in the way we were raised. But what Jesus is saying, if you can't go there, if you can't see that, then you really can't be friends with me. You can't be one with me. You can't go where I go. This is the amazing thing. It's not that we don't try to be good at what we do, be great at what we do. Again, it's the balance of that work, but footwashers at heart. We know what's really important. We have the perspective and we have the balance right. If we can do that, we can start to see who this father really is and then we can relax and we know that everything is going to be okay because we have that kind of unassuming God who created us, loves for us, cares for us and is waiting to resolve us back to himself. Let's pray. Father, this is... Difficult stuff. It just runs across the grain of just about everything that we experience as human beings, things that we were taught, experiences that we've had. And whether we all come to the same conclusion as this, about who you are, help us to be willing to leave no stone unturned, to move in every possible direction to find out whether it is and how we are going to understand who you are. That's our prayer. Help us to continue this Lenten attitude of willingness to strip away anything that would stand between us and your face and to move through it with laughter and a lightness and an understanding that You're always there, no matter how we understand you. Thank you for loving us that way, Lord. Thank you for always being there. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.